Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, learning finances in the classroom, a chat with Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro. Learning all the misconceptions of the current gas and oil market. And we begin with Dr. Michael Wolk, Medical Director at Allied Services Rehabilitation Hospital with the latest in advancements for after a stroke. Dr. Wolk, it's a pleasure to have you here. And we talk about stroke a lot and people are always fearful of what if I have one and what if I have another one? And when we talk today, maybe first of all, you can start off by just giving us an overview of a stroke and then what happens to prevent a stroke? What can we do? And The other aspect, which I don't think I've had the opportunity to talk about too much, is the rehabilitation. So welcome, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the ability to uh, speak to you today and and, and all your listeners. So I am the uh, Medical Program Director for Stroke Rehabilitation at Allied Services Rehabilitation Hospital. I'm also the Regional President of the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association. We just came off having a very successful heart and stroke walk, which helped raise money for research for helping individuals with heart disease as well as stroke. As you know, uh, stroke is still ranks number five among all causes of death in the United States. There are things that we can do to try and prevent having a stroke. There are certain things that we can't do, but there's many things that we can do. And after having a stroke, it's important to know where to go, how quick you have to get there. The American Heart Association and Stroke Association has developed a mnemonic, FAST, which is F-A-S-T, which is if you see any kind of facial weakness, if you have any arm weakness, if you have any speech difficulty, then it's time to call and get to the hospital as soon as you can. Every second makes a difference with regards to the type of treatment that you can get early on to prevent the devastation of what a stroke can do. There are a lot of new techniques out there, whether it be the chemical clot busters, whether it be some of the new neurovascular procedures that are being done to go in essentially with like a little basket and take the clot out of the tiny arteries that are within the brain. All these things have a time frame as far as when they can be done, which can not only be life-saving, but disability-saving. There are people, however, that after having a stroke will have residual issues. Those are the people that need to know that they have rehabilitation available to them. American Heart Association uh, has published that if you do have residual effects from a stroke, There's no better place to be than a stroke-specific unit in a inpatient rehab facility. That's because that's where you have the expertise of the therapist to take care of the patient's therapy, where you have a physiatrist, which is a physician who specializes 
in physical medicine and rehabilitation, as well as the technology that's available. There's so many different things out there now that are being done to help patients get as much recovery as they can from strokes. There's body weight support uh, systems to help people learn to walk again. There's robotic therapy. There's functional electric stimulation. Physician who's well-versed in the various medications that are out there to help with brain recovery, as well as the other effects that stroke can have on the body. These type of technologies are available only in a uh, stroke-specific uh, inpatient rehab facility. And sometimes people need a much longer period of time for rehabilitation. And so there's always the potential for a stepwise approach to caring for patients with stroke. We're talking about the idea of rehabilitation. There must be so many things, as you said, that go into it. I don't want to say the attitude of a patient, but just knowing that there's so much more must mean so much more in recovery as in being positive because sometimes when someone has a stroke and they do have effects afterward, that can really send them kind of in a downward spiral. You know, it's very interesting that you say that because there is a very common association after a stroke with depression. And there's actually two types of depression that can occur. One is an organic depression. Basically, when you have injury to the brain, it's not just an anatomical change. There's a chemical change that can occur. And when that chemical change occurs, that chemical change can also result in depression. That's what we call organic depression. There's also the reactive depression. Sad that you just had a stroke. Sad that you can't do the things that you used to be able to do, at least at that moment in time. Sad about uh, feeling like you might uh, be a burden uh, upon your family. Uh, sad about maybe not being able to go back to work initially. In treating patients with stroke, we look at both types of depression and the treatment that can be done, even if it's only temporary treatment. It used to be said, if you had injury to your brain or if you had injury to your spinal cord, that was it because those neurologic tissues don't heal. If you have more peripheral nerve injuries, yeah, there is a chance for healing. Well, what we've discovered lately is that there's a philosophy called neuroplasticity. That is, there's a certain window at which even the central nervous system, brain and spinal cord, can remodel itself. We don't use every part of our brain. There's parts of our brain that are actually quiet and silent. And so after you've had a stroke, there are mechanisms by which we try to turn on some of these silent parts of your brain to take over the area of the brain that's been damaged. There's things that we do to try and minimize the amount of damage that's caused in an area of the brain. So even an individual who may have what would otherwise be called a large stroke can still have fairly full recovery depending on how aggressive we can be with some of the early interventions, as I talked about, between the neurovascular techniques, some of the clot-busting agents, and then some of the rehabilitation that we use with regards to the techniques to enhance that neuroplasticity. You know, besides the rehabilitation part and trying to recover, other thing that we do is try to prevent another stroke. Because once you've had a stroke, it's fairly common. You're at increased risk for developing a second stroke. So we focus on 
understanding what are some of the risk factors and what are some of those risk factors that you actually have control over. Blood pressure is one of the most significant ones. Controlling blood pressure is extremely important. Part and parcel to controlling blood pressure is appropriate diet and appropriate physical activity. Clearly, some patients need medications in order to help control their blood pressure, but keeping that blood pressure under control is very vital to preventing a second stroke, as well as preventing an initial stroke. The same is true with smoking. Smoking is something that is very modifiable by the individual. Quitting smoking makes a big difference. It's been reported in other types of diseases that if you can be tobacco-free for 10 years, your risks for developing tobacco-related illnesses returns almost to normal unless there's been some significant damage that's been done that can't be undone. But for the most part, smoking has a significant health effect and quitting smoking has a significant benefit in preventing a second stroke or even a first stroke for that matter. As I mentioned, diet is important, controlling cholesterol, controlling uh, obesity, all very important in preventing a second stroke. Physical inactivity or physical activity, again, very important in being able to control and prevent having a second stroke. Diabetes, another one, though we don't have a cure for diabetes yet, managing diabetes is extremely important in trying to help prevent an individual from having a stroke or a second stroke. There's a condition called atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heartbeat. And there is a association between atrial fibrillation and developing a stroke. So following up with your family doctor, following up with a cardiologist is important in managing the atrial fibrillation, being on appropriate medication to both control the heart rate as well as whether or not you need antiplatelet medication or blood thinning agents. Controlling atrial fibrillation is extremely important in preventing stroke and second stroke. I think the other thing that I would like to mention that not many people are aware of is the importance of sleep and stroke. There's been a significant association between obstructive sleep apnea, you know, the people who snore, and stroke. The issue is, is that sleep apnea is not just about snoring. It's about actually not getting enough oxygen into your bloodstream because at times, even though you may be snoring, you may actually not be breathing for periods of time. And there's been a significant association between sleep apnea and stroke. So getting your sleep analysis is very important and doing what's necessary to help prevent those apneic periods. What about stress? Does that play a part in maybe stroke? So that's a really good question. So the question is, what does stress do to the body? Biochemically, there's a whole discussion about, you know, whether or not stress has an effect on some of the chemicals in your body and whether or not those chemicals then have an adverse effect on your physical well being. And the answer is yes, stress can play a role. Just as you know, when you get really stressed, sometimes your heart rate can go up and there is an association between stress and what is being done to the vascular system. The reason I ask that is because there are so many people who have different types of stress. For example, being a caregiver. And while we're on the 
questions. Can you explain TIA? Is it a stroke? Is it not a stroke? I'm going to answer the latter question first. So a TIA or transient ischemic attack, some people call those mini strokes, but it's reversible. And so by definition, lasts less than 24 hours. So basically, it's like a, a, I'll call it a pre-stroke. You'll have neurologic findings. You could have speech difficulty. You could have weakness, uh, those type of things. But then it fully recovers. And again, it's like less than 24 hours. So that's what we call a TIA. Think about it like with the heart disease. If somebody has angina, they may be having a little ischemia. So a lack of oxygen getting to that uh, area of the body, that being the heart, or a TIA, a lack of oxygen getting to an area of the brain. But there's no infarction. In other words, there's no damage to the tissue. That would be as if you actually had a heart attack where you would have damage to the muscle or if you had a stroke where you actually had damage to the brain. So by definition, it's sort of a mini stroke, but it really didn't cause any damage. It's a real warning sign of an impending stroke. So getting back to the first part of the question about the caregiver and stress and anxiety, or even if you're not a caregiver, but you're somebody who's highly stressed, Stress has been shown to have an effect, as I was trying to say, on the body with regards to the things that do cause stroke. So stress can raise blood pressure. Stress can actually worsen diabetes, and it can raise your cholesterol. All of those things make it more likely that you potentially could have a uh, stroke. And so educating the patient is important on what to do to relieve the uh, factors that can cause a stroke or a second stroke, but it's just as important to do the same thing with the caregivers and understanding what the caregiver needs to be able to do to not only care for their loved one, but to make sure they take care of themselves. So getting back to a TIA then, if someone has an episode such as that, does that necessarily mean that they're in line to have a full-blown stroke at some point in time? Or could it just be more or less a shot across the bow in order to take better care of yourself? It's definitely a precursor for having a stroke. There's a significant increased incidence of having a stroke after you've had a TIA, but it is definitely a warning sign for you to make sure you get to a doctor, to make sure that you do get evaluated, that you do start doing the things that are necessary to try and prevent you from getting that stroke. There's no guarantee that you have to have a stroke if you had a TIA. There are things that you can do to try and prevent you from getting that stroke. When we go forward and we talk about the rehabilitation All this must also come into play in that because, again, you're usually dealing with loved ones of the person that may be going through all this. So is that something that comes into play when we're talking about treatment so that everybody is getting treated now? It's not just focusing on the patient? Yes. We're treating a village. (laughs) It takes a village to help people, but you're also helping the village. You know, we live in a society where it's very important that you have support. And having support is helping to quit smoking, 
helping to eat right, helping to get the physical activity, helping with the home exercise program that may be necessary. So all of that is important. And if you end up finding out that the person who had the stroke has something that is hereditary, it's important then to find out if there's anybody else within the family who may have a like gene that needs to be counseled. Dr. Wolk, I'd love to have you come back again and give us some more information. But for this time around, is there anything that we've left out that you would like our listeners to know? And also, most importantly, where can they go in order to get more information on all of this topic? To answer that question, uh, that one's easy. The American Heart Association, American Stroke Association, is an excellent resource for understanding heart disease as well as stroke. They have websites, etc. The information regarding rehabilitation would certainly be something you could access going to Allied Services Integrated Health Systems, at least for our local market. As far as what is really important, the sort of the takeaway message from today, first is you don't want to have to rehabilitate from a stroke if you can try and prevent the stroke. So you want to be able to do what you need to do now that you can correct. You can't change your family genes, but you certainly have the ability to look at your diet, look at your physical activity, look at smoking, those type of things. And the other thing is never, ever belittle a neurologic change in your health. If all of a sudden you develop facial paralysis, you develop speech difficulty, you develop weakness in an arm or a leg, or you have difficulty walking all of a sudden for no unexplained reason, and then it goes away, don't just brush it off. You need to contact your physician as soon as possible. 911. 911. Thanks once again to Dr. Michael Wolk, Medical Director at Allied Services Rehabilitation Hospital. Now don't go away. When we come back, we're going to travel to Texas and find out about the misconceptions of the current oil and gas market on Special Edition. Next on Special Edition, oh, those gas prices. J.P. Bolton, principal of Wheeler Resource Recovery in Texas, joins us to tell us about the misconceptions of the current oil and gas market. JP, it's nice to have you here, and we're going to talk about oh, oil and gas. Everything surrounds so much when we talk about summer coming up. What's going on with all this? Gas prices up, oil prices up, help. Well, there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, our, our company's been around since 1932, so we've got 90 years experience in this. The only thing I have to bow down to is that Pennsylvania had the first commercial oil well in the history of the world. That was back in 1859 in Titusville. So you beat us by 73 years, but uh, we've been doing it almost a century now. What I'm looking at basically in the marketplace is a couple of things. Uh, oil and gas are, are pretty much tied just like gold and silver are. You know, one goes up, the other goes up because they both got the same ultimate functions. But uh, what we're looking at is the supply and demand curve in all cases. So the higher the supply, uh, the lower the demand, then the price goes south. If you get a demand up, supply down, obviously price goes north. But right now we have a burgeoning uh, usage situation facing us. The uh, government estimates a massive increase in travel by car and airplane uh, over the summer. 
supposedly, according to AAA, uh, we're up 11% over last year, and 42 million people traveled over the uh, Memorial Day weekend. So Americans are going to travel. Delta Airlines reporting record advance bookings. Uh, TSA predicts record number of travelers passing through airports. So again, you look at supply and demand. Demand is way up. So how does that equate then to price? We have a reduction in COVID restrictions. So people have a pent-up demand to take vacations, make up for lost times, and prices are driven by the supply and demand. But more importantly, prices are heavily influenced by speculators in energy future trading. That sounds like an anomaly at first, but in reality, it's what drives the market. You figure last quarter, prices were already high. And this was from speculators. And I want to bring up an instance uh, very specific in history that illustrates this. You remember when the Keystone Pipeline was canceled? Absolutely. Overnight, overnight, gas prices rose over 12 cents a gallon, yet the Keystone Pipeline wasn't even built. It wasn't going to be completed for two years, yet prices rose 12 cents overnight because of the announcement that there was going to be a shortage somewhere down the road. So the speculators bid it down. So you see how the, the speculators felt supply would drop, so they bid up the price because supply and demand. The other thing that's contributing to this is we've got an endemic supply chain issue. We've got shortages of all kinds of materials and it's aggravating the situation. Right now, speculators are anticipating the summer travel surge, so demand will increase with it the price. And if that's not enough, well, we've got a nice little war here in Ukraine. <laughs> so, <laughs> and interesting, here's another illustration of the speculators' influence in price. That war in Ukraine is interfering with the Russian, basically Russian supply of oil. Yet the U.S., only 2% of U.S. consumption is Russian-based and only 9% globally. So with with less than 10% of the global need being affected by this, speculators are responding to this way out of any kind of proportion to its actual effect. You've got another aspect that's creating more, more cost. May 1st, all the retailers are required to switch to the summer-grade gasoline, and that costs about 20 cents a gallon more than the winter gasoline. And the purpose of that additive is to prevent evaporation and pollution. So 20 cents a gallon on top of everything else we're looking at, that creates a a pretty good scenario for for increased gas prices. Government's forecasting about $3.50 per gallon for the summer. That's 80 cents less than it was last year which was the highest since 2014. So that's rather interesting. Globally, we're in really good shape. Uh, We always have been. Last May, and I'm going to give you a broad-based synopsis basically across the world. Last May, Hong Kong, Norway, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Greece, Netherlands, Singapore, average price per gallon of gasoline was $9.15 there. Hong Kong was the highest, had $10.97. During that period, the U.S. had $4.59. So while we, we feel you know like we're being <laughs> set upon, we're actually doing pretty good. One of the misconceptions, oil companies don't have the opportunity to set oil prices. We react to the market, which is a global market, so domestic production has very little to do with that. The global market being what it is, that's what gas and oil costs, and that's what we respond to. Another illustration of that speculator aspect, if I produce a barrel of oil, we send it to a refinery, it's months before it turns into a gallon of gasoline. Yet, as we see in that Keystone Pipeline example and and everything else, a political announcement can raise the price overnight significantly. So gasoline futures move the current market. 
long haul, obviously oil prices do, but uh, they're they're dictated by the future markets as well. So we react to these price fluctuations best we can. Obviously, we gear up for peak summer, peak winter, things like that. But bottom line, gas and oil is in an ascendancy. It's going to dominate energy for the next 20 years minimum. And everybody's talking about these new electric vehicles, but the batteries are not yet evolved enough to even come close to competing with the efficiency of gas engines. So you can go about 200 miles on on one of those cars, and that's if you're not in peak winter or peak summer where you're running an air conditioner your heater, just driving about 200 miles, you got to stop and recharge. So you want to take a trip across the state and back, you better plan two days, one night to sleep in a hotel and charge your car. But let's say they invented the technology today that made it an equivalent efficient mechanism. It would take 20 years to replace the infrastructure we have that supports gasoline engines. So our current electric grid too can't support electric cars at the levels of gas vehicles. So in our lifetime, we are not going to see gas and oil go anywhere except up. And, and the war in Ukraine has really brought that to the world's attention. You'll, you'll notice, too, how gas prices rise and fall without a similar move in the price of a barrel of oil. Barrel oil price is basically a globally set thing, and it's based on the refining cost, uh, distribution, which is shipping, and taxes. You think about this, too. The, the oil companies are not the big bad guys because oil companies make large profits when the market dictates that they can. But what happens to it, it gets sent back to shareholders. So last calendar year, Big Oil sent $88 billion back to shareholders, double what was sent in 2014. And who are shareholders? They're Ma and Pa America. They're us. So it's, you know, that's where the money goes is to people that own the oil companies. So you know our prognosis is we're going to have higher prices, but uh, we have a manageable situation here in the U.S. The oil companies are not responsible for this. We respond to it. Uh, we make a lot of money. Absolutely. Pennsylvania is a very good example of this. Your, your shale extraction uh, resulted in huge quantities. Uh, it's driven down the price significantly against supply and demand. The average family in Pennsylvania apparently saves about $1,200 annually on gas prices to heat their homes, and, and this results also in you know less shutoffs for lower-income people that, that really need it. According to the statistics, 51% of your homes and commercial buildings are heated by gas. Marcellus Shale that you've got up there is a, is a killer, <laughs> which we had it down here in Texas. Tens of thousands of high-paying jobs, billions to your local economies. Uh, Forbes said Pennsylvania startup that changed the world. And they're talking about that well in Titusville. So y'all need to be proud of that. Y'all y'all started this whole thing back there in uh, 1859. You're doing really good. Let me put it that way. You're doing real good. You know, uh, oil is, is huge as far as being in the media a lot. But uh, when you get right down to it, production, 21% of the nation's natural gas. Texas is 24. In oil, Texas produces more oil than all the other states combined. But with gas, you're right there on our heels, and uh, gas is pretty important right now because it's a very efficient, clean-burning aspect of petroleum and fossil fuels. So y'all are doing good. Could you give our listeners a little bit of the, the background of Wheeler Resource Recovery, of which you are involved with in Texas? I'm a half-owner. Uh Wheeler's been around since 1932, uh, started pre-war. Uh, they didn't even uh, count production during the war years because it was produce every barrel you can for the war effort. We had a field in Conroe, Texas. We produced over 11 million barrels before the war, and we don't know how much during the war, but right now, uh, 150-some-odd acres has produced over 22 million barrels. 
What we do predominantly is what they call water floods. We're in the commercial end of this. We're not the one-off, you know, drill one well today and move, you know, over to Atmelis Pasture, next county, drill another well. We develop fields. You know, it's a it's a systematic engineering play more than it is some sort of a speculative uh, exploratory endeavor. So we, we've done real well. Um, we've done three big fields, produced over 29 million barrels out in there in West Texas. We're currently doing one just south of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and uh, it's going to be 54 wells. Uh, we estimate a recovery of 17 million barrels. So we feel like we're pretty good players in this, and um, fortunately, we're privately held, and so we're not subject to the restrictions and regulations that uh, the major publicly traded companies are. And uh, when they raise those prices because they do the restrictions, it benefits us. So we love the current administration for causing the gas and oil prices to rise because as it benefits us. So, <laughs> what can I say? Politics uh, creates strange bedfellows. For someone such as myself who doesn't quite get all of the intricacies of all of this, you've really brought up so many different topics. And JP, if there was any place where people could go and really get the good information on this, is there, I know, you know, people look at the stock market, they look, they read all these different publications, but is there any place where, where we could actually go and, and say, we could sit down and take all of in what you were just telling us about in more detail? Sure. Uh, if you looked at our webpage, it's wheelerresourcerecovery.com. Uh, what you'll see there is, is how we operate, how a field development is done, uh, the lower risk aspect of it. But when you compare investment vehicles, that, that's the interesting aspect that you brought up here. Stocks right now, everybody's anticipating a, a correction in the market. Uh, they're, they're somewhat inflated. Uh, tech stocks drop down. Money that was being put into stocks is being held on the sideline right now. Same thing is true in commercial real estate. There's no deals out there. I've talked to many people in commercial real estate, and they're hoarding their money because there's no opportunity out there right now. They're, they're waiting for something to change in the marketplace, but there are no deals available. Let's look at gold. You know, okay, let's put our money into gold because things are uncertain. Gold is $2,000 an ounce. It's a historical high. Why would you want to put your money into something that is a historical high when you know it's going to go down once things get corrected? So I buy gold today to protect my wealth at 2000 an ounce. It drops to 1500 And when things normalize, you know, I've lost 25% of my money. Cryptocurrency, it's so volatile. It's higher risk than going to Vegas. So what people are doing with their money now is they're looking for hard commodities because commodities are something that they're always going to they're always going to be a driver in the market. You know, and if you think about needs of people, if you got a bellyache, you're going to see the doc. Medical is always going to be good. When you're hungry, you're going to eat. So food, agriculture is always good. You're going to heat your house. You're going to drive your car. So energy is a driver in the marketplace. And what we've seen that that war in Ukraine, as much as I hate to keep bringing that up, has really brought the world's attention to the significance of gas and oil and energy in the world. And right now we're in an ascending market while the other investment vehicles are kind of in declining or uncertain ground. Take a look at uh, wheelerresourcerecovery.com, get an idea of how field development works. 
if you don't have an all well, get one. You know, get on the other side of the pump, so to speak. <laughs> well, if you, if you can arrange that, JP, I'm I'm all in. That'd be okay you, with me. <laughs> you look at my website and you can buy into an all well. How about that? I'll give you a price that, that'll knock your socks off. All right. Well, I think that's an excellent idea. You brought up so many points that I think a lot of people just don't get. All they understand is it goes up and it comes down, but not much. But it goes up again. Right. Well, <laughs> we, we live and breathe this. This is how we make our living. We have for 100 years. So we, we do know the intricacies of it and happy to share them with you. And I really appreciate you having me on to speak to you and your people. Thank you, ma'am. Thanks again to J.P. Bolton, principal of Wheeler Resource Recovery in Texas, giving us all the information about the current oil and gas market. Now, don't go away. Information on Pennsylvania's governor from the governor next on special edition baseball is in full swing nba playoffs are heating up and your nfl team is gearing up for training camp listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the odyssey app the biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app Coming up on Special Edition, financial literacy in the classroom. But starting us off, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro is in our area. Odyssey's Nancy and Jason caught up with him. Let's uh, talk to Governor Josh Shapiro, who is with us. How are you guys? Doing all right. How about yourself? You got this new job. Is it working out all right for you? <laughs> it's working out well. <laughs> I'm working my tail off, though, uh, but it, it's great. I'm blessed to do it. Yeah, we saw you were in the area just uh, the last uh, week or so, and you were doing a whole bunch of things. First of all, before we get into the state parks, and uh, there's really important issues like mental health and, and things for our seniors. But tell us, uh, here yeah. we are, how many months in? How's it been um, immersing yourself in this? And what are some of the biggest challenges you found? I mean, look, just on a purely personal level, it it's really humbling. and I, And I mean that sincerely. It's humbling in terms of the the honor people have given me to serve as the, the 48th governor of Pennsylvania. It's humbling when I look at the, the major challenges that we face and that I've been entrusted to do this work to help make people's lives better. Um, it's humbling as, as a father and, you know, and a, and a husband to, to be able to manage all this. Um, and, and by no means am I complaining. I'm, I'm just sort of saying, like, that's how I feel every day. I also feel driven. Like, I, I've got... You know, not enough hours in the day to accomplish what I want. The, the good news is I've got an amazing team around me who, who work incredibly hard, and uh, including a lot of folks from northeastern Pennsylvania who serve in my cabinet. Um, I think we've got a good plan of attack to, to go and make people's lives better, and I think we're executing effectively. But um, overall, I'd, I'd say that the singular emotion I feel most is just a, a sense of humility. I, I really feel humble in this work. So here's just another one. And the answer could simply be, no, not really. Being close to the governor and then being the governor has got to be different. So do you find yourself in any positions where you're like, wow, my perspective has changed my opinion on anything? Or is it, has your perspective changed on anything that you went into this office with? Uh, maybe just on issues or just how the state itself is run? since you started? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I guess maybe um, two things off the top of my head. 
One is, um, you know, as I've gotten to know the public servants who work in state government, I'm not talking about like my senior staff and cabinet, many of whom I've known for many years. I'm talking about, you know, the folks who are answering the, the calls on the other end of the phone when, when uh, Pennsylvania calls them a challenge. I, I've made a point to go around and, and visit those agencies. There's a hell of a lot of good people in state government just doing a really, really good job. And so I think you know, your perspective when you're on the outside is that, oh, boy, you know, this could be a lot better in these folks, you know, blah, blah, blah. But but actually what I'm finding is they're just unbelievably dedicated public servants. So I, I think that's one thing that really, um, you know, maybe I, I've got a different perspective on. And then another thing, which I, I recognize is not going to be popular with all your listeners yeah, I, I campaigned the first time I ran for attorney general on the idea that capital punishment was a just punishment for certain crimes, certain heinous crimes, but certain crimes. And then as governor in my first, I don't know, first or second week in office, maybe second week or something, when that first execution warrant comes across your desk, yeah, I, I couldn't sign that. I mean, I have a very different perspective on capital punishment today than I did you know, a handful of years ago. And I've been very open about my evolution and change of mindset on that issue. But boy, when that, when that piece of paper crosses your desk and you realize the awesome, you know, power and responsibility you have, um, you know, I, I think you're the only one that can sign that document. You're the only one who sits at the head of the table on those decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly a different perspective. And again, I realize not everybody's going to agree with me on that issue, but you asked me a question. I want to give you a, you know, an honest answer in yes. terms of how, how my thoughts have changed over right. over these first hundred or so days. Yeah, it's probably one of the That's, really uh, most uh, critical things that you hear uh, people that become governor and say that's probably the heaviest thing you have to deal with. Um, yeah. On a much lighter note, uh, you were in <laughs> Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. A very much lighter note. We're going to go back to where you were uh, recently at Lehigh Gorge State Park and uh, you were talking yeah. about a new park access point, but also a lot of money that you say um, you want to put into our parks and our forests. So let's talk about that because it seems like this is uh, a growing thing. People, uh, families today, parks uh going camping going hiking it's mm-hmm. just growing in popularity oh my god first off my family and i love state parks we we spent part of our memorial day weekend at french creek state park which is kind of on the border of chester and berks county last week as you noted i was at um i was at uh, lehigh gorge state park um just a beautiful park in, in northeastern pennsylvania we, we are blessed in pennsylvania with just beautiful scenery and natural resources 124 state parks, 12,000 miles of trails. We love to hike. Um, and it's not just about our enjoyment and outdoor recreation. Um, these parks are actually key to our economic success. Uh, outdoor rec adds $14 billion a year to our economy. It supports 150,000 jobs in our state, full-time jobs. Um, travel and tourism, which is a, a key driver of people into our state parks, supports 40,000 jobs. In northeastern Pennsylvania alone, um, and that is a huge part of the economy in the Poconos. And so the more we can invest in our state parks, the more it makes sense from just a quality of life standpoint and an economic uh, success standpoint. So this new access point at Lehigh Gorge, it connects Main Street and Whitehaven to a popular trail. And 
it really just provides better facilities for visitors and local rafting companies. And my family and I have already made arrangements to get out and raft later in the summer. Once we get this budget passed and things <laughs> quiet down a bit, um, we're going to get out on the water. So it, it was just an awesome site. And I'm really proud of the folks at DCNR and the good work they do to make our parks open fall. And by the way, free to access, which is not the case in every state. So you can go to our state parks for free. And um, it's amazing. Just to give you a sense, sorry, I'm going to nerd out on our state parks here for a minute. I was at French Creek State Park, not northeastern PA, more in the southeastern part of the state, but just to kind of elucidate the point. We were there on, I think it was Sunday, the night before, so Saturday night, over 4,000 people camped in that state park. And that's just one of our state parks. It's just, it's an amazing um, place and, and, you know, folks deserve to have the best of the best when it comes to outdoor recreation. And that's why my budget invests more in our state parks than ever before. We really believe in their mission and what they're doing. I saw where only nine states actually are free, and Pennsylvania is one of them. Now, someone did text mm-hmm. us to ask why we don't charge out-of-state folks uh, to use our parks, thinking that could probably bring in some money. Yeah, I mean, look, I, first off, it might be a little hard to monitor. I guess you could check driver's license on the way in or something. But I think the idea of our state parks is to attract people to our commonwealth and let's take the example of your of the caller who asked that let's say you're you're coming in from new york or new jersey right and you go to the state park well yeah maybe we don't charge you there but the good news is you're probably going to go eat at a restaurant on the main street you're probably going to use the you know the outdoor you know outfitter to maybe rent your canoe or your kayak or whatever um you know maybe you'll pay to camp and buy some stuff from one of our local uh, companies. I mean, I, I think that there is an economic benefit to the Commonwealth, even if we're not charging you a few bucks on the way in. And that's good for local businesses in the area. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a trade off. But I want to get to the master plan for older adults because Northeast PA sure. has a lot of senior citizens. And we have heard from uh, some it's getting more expensive health care, things that they thought would be covered. It's getting and costing more. Tell us about, if you can, the Cliff Notes version, I guess, because you have like a 10 point master plan for older Americans. Yeah. What, is, what are the most important things that you're working on there? Yeah, and I'll, uh, the Cliff Notes was a polite way of you saying, don't filibuster here, <laughs> okay. Gov. Just tell us what's up. Um, look, I mean, Pennsylvania is, is blessed. We've got a large population of, of seniors, fifth largest in the entire country, third largest population of people over 85. I think that's an asset for us. We need to treat it that way. We also have to recognize that population is growing. So one in four Pennsylvanians today are seniors. But by the end of this decade, 2030, one in three will be seniors. And so what we've got to do is listen to our seniors who keep calling out for more help to deal with rising costs, to accessing services, to getting the benefits that they've already earned, that they've paid into. We've never had a master plan before in Pennsylvania that stitches all of this together um, for older adults. And so I charged my... Um, Secretary of Aging, who, by the way, is from Northeastern PA, from Lackawanna County, used to lead one of the AAAs in in that area. Um, I tasked him with coming up with a plan of action, not a plan that gets written and sits on a bookshelf, but a plan of action to help our seniors access services, cut costs, and be able to live their golden years with dignity and, and respect. 
In addition to that, um, I'm trying to put money back in the pockets of seniors. So my budget makes a significant investment, not just in this master plan and the Department of Aging and other healthcare services, but trying to give our seniors a big tax break, um, expanding the property tax rent rebate to include more than 175,000 new seniors, including 24,000 new seniors just in Lackawanna and Luzerne counties alone. And then what it also does is nearly doubles the property tax rent rebate that seniors get. So we're actually nearly doubling the number of seniors that qualify and nearly doubling the amount of rebate they get. That's critical to helping seniors be able to age in their homes and deal with rising costs. So we're going to have a master plan to focus on how we pull all of this together and help our seniors get the services that they deserve and that they've paid in for. And we want to put more money back in their pockets by um, expanding and raising the property tax rent rebate. So I signed an executive order to do the comprehensive plan. And then the property tax rent rebate expansion is part of my budget negotiations with the legislature. I'd like to think Republicans and Democrats can come together on helping our seniors. Um, it's certainly something I'm going to be fighting really hard for. We'll have to talk about yeah, that yeah. budget. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Jason. Have a great week. Yeah, you too. Thank you, you too. Speaking of state government, the Auditor General is trying to get financial literacy into the classroom. Katie Schoenartz is an Edward Jones financial advisor and says they're working on that, too. Katie, it's nice to have you here. And we're talking about financial fitness. Wow. Unbelievable. What finances can do to people. And of course, you folks at Edward Jones have now developed something that can help. Tell us about it. Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me here today. It really is an exciting topic to talk about financial fitness. This is an initiative developed by Edward Jones to help people, investors of all ages, really build financial resilience to help them have the confidence to develop healthy habits that will lead to future financial security. Tell us a little bit more about that, the, the financial fitness initiative. Who is it geared toward and what is included in all of that? We have interactive programs that are available on our website. So whether you're at home or on the go, you can log in, take a look at these interactive modules that are really, really informative. We also have the ability to develop and share information in school, equipping teachers with the information that they need to deliver an investment-basic course designed for teens. And then also, we can make an impact in our local community by delivering information through our local advisors through seminars. Is that one of the things that this is also gearing toward is to get especially teens and young people involved in making money decisions, including investing? Absolutely. We're hoping to reshape some of those conversations that people have about money and finance and really prepare that next generation to develop healthy habits that will lead to confidence and develop that financial knowledge that will help them be financially resilient, not only now, but in the future. Are there now available things such as student loans, mortgages, car payment, buying cars, houses, different things like that? Or is it more balancing your checkbook? Actually, all of the above. 
the interactive modules that we have available on our website include some of those topics. You know, going about buying your first home, or maybe you're a recent college graduate, graduation time right now, and you're unsure about how do I create a budget or how do I even get started to, to build some conversations or build those strategies and habits that will lead to financial decisions that may impact your financial future down the road. There's a wide variety of topics, and there's so many different ways that we can increase our financial knowledge. Katie, that's so important because people talk about their health all their time, but finances can be just as detrimental as having a bad diagnosis with your health. Right. Kind of tying that back in financial fitness, we really think it's important to develop not only that knowledge, how does it all work? How do we put it together, but develop some healthy habits that can help you be more confident, develop strategies that will lead to your financial resilience to help you make important financial decisions down the road. We're really passionate about education. So where can people go in order to find out all this great information? Sure. If you go on to edwardjones.com slash fitness. The interactive site will actually direct you to the topics that may interest you both. We really want to meet people where they are and how they want to improve their financial knowledge. So if you're a recent college grad, or maybe you're having a family discussion, how do I bring this up with my children? Or you might have aging parents that you're becoming their primary caregiver. Thanks for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.